Hi, everyone. Welcome to Orthopod. I'm here with a friend and colleague, Dr. George Utwal, who is a professor in the Department of Surgery, a shoulder and elbow surgeon, and uh, currently uh, works at Western University in Canada. Hi, George. Hello, Dr. Bender. How are you? Oh, very good. Thanks. Um, I'm going to spend about five minutes, if I can, sharing some slides of about three papers with you, and I will do that very quickly. And I'm hoping afterwards just to get your take on this. And, you know, I think probably the easiest way to do it is let me, I'll just kind of get through the slide deck and then maybe we can have a short little discussion around what the content is. And I know you're well aware of this literature pretty well. And so I think um, we'll be able to mostly just kind of let our viewers know what we're talking about and then go, go from there. So we're going to talk a little bit about, um, you know, displaced radial head fractures. And within that, there are three questions we're particularly interested in. What works best for... Um, these displaced fractures in terms of, you know, uh, internal fixation or arthroplasty. If we're going to be using arthroplasty, is a fixed or a non-fixed, we call loose-fitting uh, uh, implant, going to be optimal? And quite frankly, are all implants created equal? Those are the three questions that these three papers aim to evaluate. And the first paper that came out roughly, um, you know, earlier, uh, for early mid last year, it was a paper was a network meta-analysis. And this has been, there's been tons of work done on network meta-analysis. But the gist of the storyline was that when we look for, when we look at specifically displaced radial head fractures, that arthroplasty results tended to have better outcomes, broadly speaking, um, than fixation. Now, either fixation with the metallic or bioabsorbable implant. So this was based, again, not necessarily on all randomized clinical trials. There were some trials and a lot of observational data sets, but that was the gist of that particular paper. Not that long after, though, there was another paper that came out in late 2018 or so that had another interesting conclusion. And they said, well, listen, if we look at all of the uh, radial head arthroplasty implants that have been used for displaced fractures, it turns out that we think that the um, overall rigidly fixed implants are at greater risk of having uh, revision surgery than the smooth stem spacers or what they call the unfixed designs. So actually, you know, suggesting in fact that if you're going to choose a type of uh, radial arthroplasty, you might be looking at an unfixed design. But interestingly, um, when you looked at the conclusion, Rightly so, they said, hey, listen, there are areas where we're not 100% sure. And the truth of the matter is that, you know, in our meta-analysis, we didn't look at all of the causative factors um, that would have been potentially interesting to do so. So that led our group, um, and obviously with your collaboration, um, you know, the impetus to say, okay, you know, it's, it's quite plausible that, in fact, not all fixed implants are created equally, and there might be heterogeneity, which we basically means differences between implants or designs that would potentially lead to different outcomes. So this led to the third paper in this systematic review series that looked, you know, looked at, at the core work that had already been done and then said, okay, can we look at those causative factors uh, that might be potentially influencing these outcomes? And in short, there were a couple of key findings. One was, you know, there's going to be different types of indications that are just going to have greater complication rates. And that was one key finding uh, of that work, that when we look at the overall complication rate with one particular uh, approach, you know, there were differences overall with respect to, uh, you know, complications, in this case, revision, specifically with the terrible triad. And finally, um, you, know, you can see this design here, but finally, the other 
point that was of interest was when you looked at the range of designs that were included in, in across in, in this literature, and again, these are mostly um, non-RCT data, but when you looked at that, you could see that if you were to clump all of the fixed you know, implant uh, outcomes together as revisions, you would get somewhere in the 10 to 12% range, but you can see it, rain, it went very, very widely, anywhere from a few percent all the way much past 60%. We also learned that there are many implants that you know just aren't even in uh, aren't even in circulation anymore. They've been dis been discontinued. So that's the challenge I think we find when we do uh, work in radial head arthroplasty research or in these areas where if you're looking over time, you know there's all kinds of challenges to you know to, to pooling data. So that kind of has been what we've been learning. And I guess the question is because the data is an all RCT data, um, it may not be the most robust data sets, but it is the best we have. I'm curious, George, from your perspective, like, what do you make of all this? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it was really important is to understand where all this data is coming from. And right. what we have to understand, just as you identified that there's this heterogeneity in the implant types, that makes sense. I mean, uh, we know that with anything that's manufactured, cars, I mean, there's like a, you have your Mercedes Benz and then you may have your, your Kia, your Ford Escort, and those are not made equally. And if you call them a car, one's maybe perform better than the other. Yeah. But going back to even the foundations of the materials and you look at the patients that we select, there's such a high degree of heterogeneity within the patient population, as you identified in that last slide. Yeah. And that provides a huge amount of bias as we go through all of these studies. So when we look over time, uh, our patient indications have changed and those implants have also changed. Uh, specifically, when you look at the indications and I look at uh, when we do a radiohead arthroplasty and compare that to fracture fixation in those more complex cases where we have uh, ligamentous injuries, uh, fractures of the coronoid, other associated injuries, what we term as complex elbow instability, we know that those radial head fractures are more accommodated and more damaged. And so they tend to do, with that bias, they tend to do better with an arthroplasty. And many patients, many cases, those, those younger patients, we're trying to fix them. We really want to fix them, but we're fixing a fracture that's one of the most challenging fractures to fix. It's osteopenic, it, it's comminuted. And so you can kind of get a story of why sometimes uh, operational internal fixation may not do as well in those complex cases where the arthroplasties tend to do better. Oh, that's very interesting. And what's your take on this huge range between types of um, you know, fixed devices? Is there is there any gleaning, is there any message from that that you would glean? I think uh, the more, anatomic uh the fixed devices uh i would it, it would your sense is that it's probably better that i mean if we can recreate anatomy anatomically with right. an implant that would seem better the challenge in lies is is how do we recreate that uh, uh right. and what we find is is that if you have very well established techniques on understanding if the anatomy of a surgeon that's experienced and that can place the implant into its anatomic position, I would suspect that those patients and those implants are probably going to do better. Uh, so I think it has a lot to do with uh, technique, you know, implant design and surgeon experience. And if you were to now think about what the fourth study would look like, what would be like what what needs to be sorted out in the area of radiohead fractures that, you know, where we still need more? And I guess the argument could be, well, it would be lovely to get you know, bigger studies and more data on what we already have, so we can be more confident about the, the results. But are there burning questions that need to get answered in this area that you've been thinking about? Well, I think, I mean, uh, I, I guess I have a little bit of a biased uh, patient population that 
Yeah, we tend to see, or I tend to see sometimes the, the complications of non-operative management. Yeah. And so, uh, although there's um, Scandinavian literature that says that, you know, for type twos and stuff like that, and yeah. some common yeah. ones we may not have to operate on. I mean, I'd like yeah. to really know, like we, we should, I think we should be really identifying that yeah. millimeter, three millimeter, four millimeter displacement to see, you know, they may be, they may do better with surgery, but we don't know. And I think that needs to be investigated. That's interesting. And probably as a last question for you is like in the time right now where we are seeing delays to access, you know, for what we're calling non-urgent uh, you know, orthopedic surgery, there's probably going to be a greater pressure or a greater revisiting of non-operative care, generally speaking, uh, because the backlogs are just going to get bigger. And we're not likely to see these changes, you know, go back to what we're calling pre-COVID norms for months. Some people are arguing maybe over a year. Has that changed your practice in the way you think about radial head fractures? I mean, like you just made a point around the non-operative treatment. Uh, are you going to be more likely to be pushing patients on the bubble for non-operative treatment in an environment where access is just harder to get uh, all our time? It's a very, it's a very good question. Uh, I must admit, I have tried not to let the COVID crisis change my indications. Uh, okay. So what I do do is I discuss it with, more so with the patient. So if I say like uh, pre-COVID, this is something that I would probably lean towards an operation. Right. In the present COVID crisis, are you willing to put up with the risk of coming into hospital to have a surgical procedure done? And I leave it up to the patient to decide. Right. And if they feel that they, they want to proceed ahead of surgery, I feel very comfortable doing it. I, d I don't want the COVID to change my indications for surgery because I feel that I may then have to deal with the repercussions of that down the road. Well, that's, I mean, it's an extremely logical approach to use. I'm just curious about whether patients themselves are now backing off, especially those that are vulnerable and at risk, right? They're thinking, well, you know what, I'll just wait. I'll wait it out. Can it wait an extra while? Do you think it'll be okay? Are, are you getting those kind of comments or no? Yeah, I think you're, you're right. Uh, that, that is happening. We have we see patients that are coming in, at, uh, you know, they're, they're still painful at two to three weeks. And now they're getting the extra done and identifying a fracture. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. there's some reasonable literature. I mean, uh, we did a case control series looking at uh, acute versus delayed rate of hot arthroplasty. And we found no difference. So it, it, it would it would lead me to think that, you know, if we do wait a little bit of time, it's not, the outcome's not going to be horrendous. It's not, may not be substantially uh, different. Uh, but certainly as surgeons, it's much easier to operate when fractures are acute. You know, oh, yeah. they, yeah, yeah, yeah. Easier, everything's a little bit easier. And in that subacute period, sometimes some of the complications, heterotopic ossification stiffness uh, tend to go up. Well, I mean, this has been a short podcast, but I can tell you it's been highly, highly informative. I can't thank you enough, Dr. Atwell, for taking time to you know, help us through uh, some of these issues. Uh, these are focused issues, but we really appreciate your expertise and time. No, I got to say thank you, Dr. Bender, for educating us. I mean, you have such an amazing ability to educate the world, and uh, I'm not sure if you get enough recognition for it, but really, uh, I enjoy reading your papers and working with you. Oh, it's been awesome. Thank you so much again. Appreciate it.